On the morning of January 15, 1919, the ship Miliero completed the task of offloading more than half a million gallons of molasses into a massive metal storage tank, 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter, on the Boston Harbor. The Miliero had arrived a few days before from the sugar plantations of Cuba. Molasses is a byproduct of the sugar refining process. The thick, gooey liquid is used as a sweetener, but it is also distilled to make both industrial alcohol and rum. As the molasses filled the enormous structure, workers heard weird bubbling groans from within the tank. It was a worrying sound, but everyone who lived or worked in the area had heard it before. Employees of U.S. industrial alcohol had complained about it to their bosses. They had been told it was nothing to worry about, just the new molasses mixing with the old molasses already in the tank. No big deal. It was an ordinary day in Boston, and it had warmed up a bit after a series of bitterly cold days. By noon, it was about 40 degrees, practically balmy for Boston in January. The streets filled with people on their lunch break. Factory workers, teamsters, sailors, kids. Children were always underfoot. They liked to bring cans and mugs to scoop up molasses that leaked from the tank. All appeared normal to Boston police patrolman Frank McManus, who walked the beat along the harbor, and he intended to report as much on his regularly scheduled call to headquarters. At 12.40 p.m., he picked up the phone at a police call box. At 12.41, he heard something behind him, a deep roar, accompanied by a rat-a-tat-tat sound, almost like a machine gun. McManus turned to face the sound and saw the walls of the enormous molasses tank disintegrate before his eyes. The ground rumbled as a black wall of molasses surged toward McManus. This is the year that was, 1919. Welcome to the podcast where we look at history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thanks so much for joining me. We've toured the world in the last several weeks, but today we are turning our attention to the United States. We'll spend the next several weeks looking at this eventful year from an American perspective. A lot happened in 1919, so I'm trying to approach the next few weeks like this. We're going to begin with broad outlines, and then we're going to color them in bit by bit. This week, let's focus on getting the big picture. Then in the weeks to come, we'll add more detail about labor issues, the Red Scare, racial conflicts, women's rights, and so on. So before we return to the wall of exploding molasses, and there's a sentence I don't think I've ever said before, let's take a look at America in 1919. 
105 million people lived in the United States. That's less than a third of the population today, and the distribution of that population was very different. People clustered in the East Coast and the Midwest. Today, the five largest cities in the U.S. are New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, and Phoenix. In 1919, they were New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Cleveland. The country was young. The average age was 25, and about one-third of Americans were younger than 15. Families were large, averaging about five children per household. Incidentally, it was illegal in most states to distribute information about birth control. As well as being considered pornographic, such information was feared to violate the divine order, ruin families, and lead women to choose, quote, ease and fashion over motherhood. People also feared that birth control would contribute to the decline of the white native-born American population and a rise in the African-American and immigrant population. Hostility to contraception continued despite greater awareness about at least one form of birth control, condoms. During the war, the U.S. Army had been appalled by the number of soldiers diagnosed with venereal diseases. The military had quietly and cautiously promoted condom use. The U.S. was much more prudish about the whole thing than its European counterparts. Every other military force in World War I supplied condoms directly to troops. Activists working to improve access to birth control were led by the remarkable Margaret Sanger. Sanger came from an Irish Catholic family. Her mother, Anne, conceived 18 times and gave birth to 11 live children before dying at age 49. Margaret was the sixth of these children. She believed her mother's health had been ruined by repeated births and the burden of caring for so many children. As an adult, Sanger trained as a nurse. She worked with immigrant women in New York and saw the toll that unwanted pregnancies took on families. At the same time, she became friends with a circle of left-wing artists and intellectuals in Greenwich Village. She became involved with the socialist movement. She participated in labor actions with the International Workers of the World and marched for women's suffrage. Sanger put together these two experiences and became convinced that widespread social improvement was inextricably tied to women's control of their fertility. Americans could only permanently improve their lives if women could decide if and when they got pregnant. Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States on October 6, 1916. She was arrested nine days later. She was let out on bail, went back to work at the clinic, and was arrested again. That time, she served 30 days in a workhouse. She appealed her conviction, and in 1918, her case was overturned by the New York Court of Appeals. In a landmark decision, the court allowed contraception, although only if prescribed by a doctor. Sanger began working towards starting a new clinic. It would open in 1923. But in the meanwhile, she began publishing a magazine called The Birth Control Review to promote the cause. To avoid prosecution under the Comstock Act, which made illegal the distribution of information about contraception by mail, the magazine was sold hand-to-hand. In fact, many issues of the birth control review were sold 
from the hands of one woman, one Kitty Marion. Marion was a British suffragist who had spent three years in a UK prison for arson in the cause of votes for women. Marion was hardcore. Like many suffragists, she had gone on hunger strike while in prison to protest her incarceration. Unlike most women, she had been force-fed a horrifying 232 times. Marion was expelled from the UK when the war broke out and landed in New York, where she joined the birth control movement. Every day, she would take a stack of the birth control review out to sell. She became a familiar figure in New York as she hawked the publication in Times Square and along the boardwalk on Coney Island. The public was not kind. Marion was screamed at, spat upon, propositioned, whacked with umbrellas and rotten fruit, assaulted, and routinely arrested. Nevertheless, Kitty Marion went out to sell the birth control review every day for 13 years. Think about that the next time you don't get pregnant. Okay, where was I? Demographics and birth control. Sadly, infant mortality remained high in 1919. About 10% of babies died before their first birthdays. Death and childbirth also remained high. Nearly 17,000 women died in 1920, a year for which I have data, either during or immediately after giving birth. This was the 12th most common cause of death. It is fascinating to compare causes of death across the century. Heart disease was the number one cause both in 1919 and today. After that, the lists are very different in really key ways. In 1919, you were much more likely to die of an infectious disease such as tuberculosis, diphtheria, bronchitis, whooping cough, or measles. You were much less likely to die of cancer Alzheimer's, or chronic respiratory diseases such as emphysema. Deaths from influenza dropped from their peak in 1919. But deaths from automobile accidents were on the rise as more and more cars showed up on the roads. The number of automobiles registered in 1919, by the way, was more than 7.5 million, a dramatic increase from the under 500,000 registered at the start of the decade. People in 1919 were on average less educated than we are today. Only about 16.5% of Americans had completed high school, and only 3.3% had four or more years of college. 22% had fewer than five years of education total. The average income was about $1,500 a year. The standard of living had risen in the previous few decades, but so had the cost of living. Food prices had almost tripled since 1901. For example, pork chops averaged 39 cents a pound in 1919, up from 13 cents a pound in 1901. During the war, limited supplies had driven up prices, but now those prices weren't going down. Wages had risen over the previous few years, but not as fast as prices. Income inequality was 
very much a thing. Although the introduction of the income tax in 1913 had taken the edge off before 1913, so before the income tax, about 18% of America's income went to the nation's richest 1% of people. That number was dropping in 1919 and would halt at just under 15% in 1923 before rising again. In 1928, just before the crash, the richest 1% received 19.6% of all income. The more things change. The United States was overwhelmingly white in 1919, with whites making up about 89% of the population. African Americans accounted for just under 10% of the population. So Asians, American Indians, and other racial categories made up only about 1% or so of the population. Most African Americans still lived in the South. We will talk about the start of the Great Migration in a later episode, but in 1919, it had just barely begun, and 85% of African Americans lived in Southern states. The country was still adjusting to a massive wave of immigration. Between 1900 and 1915, more than 14.5 million immigrants arrived in the United States. That was about equal the number of immigrants in the previous 40 years combined. In 1910, three-fourths of the population of New York were either immigrants or the sons and daughters of immigrants. It is well known, but worth emphasizing, that the immigrants of this area were very different from the immigrants of previous decades. In the 1800s, most people who moved to the United States were from Northern Europe. After the turn of the century, immigrants began pouring in from Southern and Eastern Europe, from places like Italy, Poland, or Russia. This new population was much less likely to be Protestant and much more likely to be Catholic, Orthodox, or Jewish. Their languages sounded strange to American ears, and their food seemed odd, their traditions strange. For some reason... Every generation of Americans seems to confront immigrants with the same hostility and fear. Previous generations in the 1800s had found the Irish weird and unacceptable. Now it was the Italians and the Ukrainians. There was a lot of hand-wringing in the press that this batch of newcomers wouldn't adapt to American ways and that they would destroy American institutions. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar. The war dialed up these fears to 11, even before the United States joined the conflict. Who knew what immigrants were capable of or if they could be counted on to be loyal to the United States? In February 1917, Congress passed the most sweeping restrictions on immigration the United States had ever known. The Immigration Act of 1917 imposed literacy tests on newcomers and created numerous new categories of inadmissible persons, including epileptics, insane persons, and political radicals. It also completely banned immigration from most of Asia and the Pacific Islands. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about fears in Western states about Japanese and Chinese immigrants. The Immigration Act of 1917 was one manifestation of that fear. The war also put a target on the backs of a large and generally law-abiding part of the population, German Americans. 
1917, more than 8 million Americans were either from Germany or descended from German immigrants. Many lived in communities where German was spoken in homes, churches, and even public schools. In 1910, more than 500 German newspapers were published in the United States. With the outbreak of the war in Europe, all of this became suspect. Even before the United States declared war against the Central Powers, Germans were viewed with fear and hostility. Rumors spread that Germans spied on American industry and sabotaged the production of supplies for the Allies. Protestations from the German-American community made no difference. By 1915, it was assumed that German secret agents were everywhere and that German-Americans were part of a secret army ready to rise up when the Kaiser gave the word. Diehard American patriots began demanding that German-Americans prove their loyalty. What was demanded was, quote, 100% Americanism, free from any hint of Germanness. Streets and towns were renamed. New Berlin in Ohio became North Canton, and East Germantown in Indiana became Pershing. Teaching the German language in schools was outlawed in 34 states, and in South Dakota, it was made illegal to speak German over the telephone. Pittsburgh banned the performance of all music written by German or Austrian composers, which eliminated Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and Brahms in one swoop. The anti-Germanization got really silly. Sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage. Hamburgers became Liberty Steaks. Dachshunds became Liberty Pups. How any of this contributed to the defeat of the Kaiser is anyone's guess. The insistence on proving your Americanness went all the way to the top. Woodrow Wilson picked up a phrase that had been first introduced in 1889, quote, hyphenated Americanism. The idea was that to be a German hyphen American or an Irish hyphen American or a anything hyphen American was not to be fully American. Editorial writers and public speakers called for people to drop the hyphen and fully integrate into American society. Former President Theodore Roosevelt spoke passionately about the danger of hyphenated Americans, saying in 1915, quote, There is no such thing as a hyphenated American who is a good American. The only man who is a good American is the man who is an American and nothing else. Wilson picked up this theme and said, quote, any man who carries a hyphen about with him carries a dagger that he is ready to plunge into the vitals of this republic whenever he gets ready. Millions of Americans felt intense pressure to drop the hyphen and prove their 100% Americanness. Self-appointed guardians of the patriotic cause were everywhere watching everyone and exerting control in bizarrely official ways. In 1917, spying on your neighbors was actively encouraged by the federal government through its support of the American Protective League, or APL. As far as I can tell, the APL is unlike any other organization in American history. If I'm wrong, let me know. It recruited tens of thousands of civilians to monitor their fellow citizens and report anything they found suspicious to the Justice Department. 
At its height, the APL had 250,000 members in 600 cities. Their goal was to identify spies, radicals, and saboteurs. But in practice, these government-sanctioned spies tended to cast a much broader net. Reports were filed on such deeply suspicious activities as checking German-language books out of the library or playing German music in the privacy of one's own home. In one case, a North Carolina clergyman trying to support 12 children on the meager salary of $800 a year was reported to the Justice Department for not buying liberty bonds. In another, APL members raided the private home of Mr. and Mrs. Frank J. Foran of Berkeley, California, on suspicion of hoarding food. Let me say that again. APL members entered and searched a private home based on a tip about canned goods. The raid discovered 25 or 30 cases of food in the foreign's basement, but investigation revealed that the family of three adults and five children routinely purchased canned foods wholesale, but had carefully followed all rationing rules regarding flour and sugar. So that's one threat neutralized. Having the APL raid your home was not, in fact, the worst thing that could happen to people who failed to prove their patriotism. At least one German-American was lynched. His crime was attending a perfectly legal Socialist Party meeting. When 11 members of the mob who killed the man were tried for murder, jurors took only a few minutes to find them not guilty. One of the exonerated men cried out, well, I guess nobody can say we aren't loyal now. These punishments for perceived disloyalty fell outside of the justice system, but the courts could get you just as well. Multiple laws were passed in 1917 and 1918 intended to prohibit interference with the war effort. The first, the Espionage Act, was a sweeping law that made illegal such ill-defined acts as obstructing recruiting into the military or uttering or printing any, quote, disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States. This wasn't considered enough by Wilson and the Justice Department, and the Espionage Act was followed by the Immigration Act of 1918, which allowed for the deportation of what were termed undesirable aliens, which basically meant any immigrants the government didn't like, and the Sedition Act of 1918, which took the Espionage Act to a whole new level. It outlawed any speech that could cause others to view the American government or its institutions in a negative light. It has been called the most repressive legislation in American history. The effect of these laws was dramatic. Socialists, anarchists, and labor activists were immediately targeted. You could expect that. But so were ordinary Americans whose only crime seems to have been insufficient patriotic fervor. A man in South Dakota was heard to say it was foolish to send young men to be killed, quote, all for the sake of Wall Street. He was sentenced to five years in Leavenworth. In Iowa, a man was observed applauding a speech criticizing the draft. He got a year in jail. In Lansing, Michigan, one Mr. Powell, father of five, complained to a relative about feeling pressured to buy war bonds. 
his relative, turned him into the Justice Department. Powell was arrested, convicted, fined $10,000, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. When the mayor of Lansing protested on Mr. Powell's behalf, he was cited for contempt of court. These people were not kidding around. Most of the prosecutions under the Sedition Act, like most of the activities reported by the American Protective League, seem absurd. To be fair, there were German spies in America, although a fraction of the number hysterical people claimed, and it doesn't seem like they did very much damage. There were also other bad actors trying to cause chaos, anarchists in particular. One group of anarchists that caused a lot of trouble were known as the Gallianists. As followers of the Italian radical anarchist Luigi Galliani, they bombed dozens of police stations, churches, and courthouses between 1914 and 1919. They threatened factories and manufacturing facilities and might have succeeded in bombing a few, although the evidence is unclear. It's entirely possible, for example, that a DuPont gunpowder plant explosion in 1915 was not an anarchist attack, as was claimed, but actually an industrial accident. After all, the same plant had averaged more than two explosions a year since 1802. Nevertheless, the Galleonists weren't kidding around. One Galleonist bomb placed in a Milwaukee police station in November 1917 killed 10. Unfortunately, their brand of terrorism was extraordinarily difficult for law enforcement to counter. Neither local police nor the Justice Department had much luck in arresting and prosecuting the anarchists, despite the Espionage Act, the Immigration Act, and the Sedition Act. So it's fair to say that the Great War had a dramatic effect on the civil rights of Americans, especially immigrants, and made complaining about the government deeply dangerous. But not all effects of the war were bad. At least most Americans, including most immigrants, could count on having a job in 1919. The economy boomed during the war, and unemployment was as low as 1.4%. However, the future was less certain. By January 1919, wartime jobs, building guns, bombs, ships and planes were ending. New peacetime jobs had not yet been created. And now millions of soldiers were demobilizing and returning to the workforce. Would there be jobs for them when they got home? The other side of this question was this. Would the people now working be able to keep their jobs when those soldiers came home? For example, African-American men had taken factory jobs in large numbers during the war, meeting the demand for workers when white American men were in uniform. Women had also joined the workforce in large numbers. This was not completely unprecedented. Working-class women, many of them immigrants, worked in factories before, during, and after the war. What changed was the type of work and who did it. Women were able to move out of such traditionally women's fields as fabric production and sewing and into manufacturing work. African-American women were able to get jobs out of domestic work for the very first time. All women were paid less than men, no matter what they did, and it was uncertain if companies would try to keep on these lower-paid women workers or give jobs back to men. 
The future of another type of labor was also uncertain, that of child labor. About a million children aged 10 to 15 were part of the workforce in 1919. About half worked on family farms, and the rest were in all kinds of fields, including manufacturing and mining. Activists had been trying for years to at least limit child labor, if not outlaw it entirely. In 1916, Congress had passed the Keating-Owen Act that prohibited the sale across state lines of goods produced by children. However, in 1918, the law was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So Congress decided to try again, and in February 1919, it passed the Child Labor Tax Law. It imposed an excise tax of 10% on the profits of companies that employed children. But manufacturers viewed it with skepticism and began preparing legal cases to challenge it. Few children lost their jobs because of the law. Agricultural work was the most common type of job for all workers in 1919, followed by retail employment and hospitality work. Other categories that attracted a large number of workers were machinists, carpenters, textile workers, coal miners, and iron and steel workers. This was an era when Americans dug up raw materials and built stuff. The work was incredibly dangerous. The number of deaths from industrial accidents was shockingly high compared with today. It's difficult to know exactly how high since the figure wasn't tracked. But the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates the figure at about 30,000 a year. We do know the numbers for a few industries like mining. More than 2,000 people died in mining accidents in 1919. In 2018, that number was 27. The attitude toward workplace risk was very different than it is today. The idea was that work was a contract between two independent equal parties, the employer and the employee. Each was free to act according to his or her best interests. And if a job was dangerous, the employee should simply demand higher wages to mitigate that risk. The idea that the relationship between a factory worker and a factory owner could be unequal or that the factory owner should be responsible for ensuring a safe workplace was considered pretty radical in 1919. Laws were mostly on the side of the employer, although they had begun to shift in a few key states, especially New York. That was because New York City had been the scene of one of the most horrifying industrial accidents in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire in 1911. And that disaster changed the legal climate in one state at least. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company operated a factory on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of a brick building in Greenwich Village. On Saturday, March 25th, between six and 700 workers, most of them women, were hard at work cutting and sewing women's clothing when fire broke out in the corner of an eighth floor workroom. The panicked workers had no way to escape. The single interior fire escape was immediately overwhelmed. So was the single elevator. The doors to the exterior stairway had been locked to prevent workers from leaving early or stealing fabric. Workers died pounding on those doors. They died jumping out of windows. They died, and so ferocious was the fire that the bodies were unidentifiable. 146 people, 
most of them young women under 20, died in the Triangle Fire. The disaster was so horrifying that the New York State Legislature overcame decades of precedent and the power of the business community to create an effective factory safety investigation system and new laws enforcing fire protection standards. Other states began slowly to adopt similar laws. But progress slowed during the war. All that mattered in factories contributing to the war effort was getting the job done. The pace of work sped up, demands on workers grew, and injuries rose. This brings us back, finally, to the molasses tank on the Boston Harbor. The tank had been constructed in November 1915 for the Purity Distilling Company, a subsidiary of U.S. industrial alcohol. It was built in Boston's North End, right along the harbor. This was both an industrial area crowded with docks and warehouses and a residential neighborhood. In the previous 20 years, the North End had become home to tens of thousands of Italian immigrants. The neighborhood was crowded with packed tenements with entire families complete with five, six or more children occupying a single room. The Spanish flu devastated the neighborhood in the fall of 1918 and left so many children orphaned that the Catholic Church opened the home for Italian children to care for them. As recent arrivals, the Italian immigrants didn't have much of a political voice in Boston. If anything, they were viewed with suspicion. It was likely that some of the nefarious anarchists actually lived in the area or at least had ties there. It was no accident that Purity Distilling built their tank in this neighborhood. The company knew area residents could put up no serious opposition. The purpose of the tank was to store molasses shipped in from Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the West Indies. This molasses would then be transported to a manufacturing plant in East Cambridge. Boston had a long and, frankly, ugly history with the molasses trade. Molasses was part of the slave trade system established between colonial New England, Europe, North Africa, and the Caribbean. Ships arrived in Africa to enslave people. These people were shipped to the Caribbean colonies where they grew sugarcane and produced molasses. The molasses was shipped to New England where it was made into rum. The rum, along with other goods like tobacco and cotton, was shipped to Europe and sold for astoundingly large sums of money. This money was used to buy enslaved people in Africa. And so the entire cycle repeated itself. Molasses was the foundation for wealth of many Americans and Europeans and a cornerstone of the New England economy for decades, even after the slave trade ended. By 1915, the syrup was less important to the economy as a whole, but was nevertheless a critical consumer and industrial good. Some molasses was still used as a sweetener, but most was distilled into alcohol. This was partly grain alcohol for rum, but most would become ethanol or industrial alcohol. In 1915, ethanol was important for the production of dynamite, smokeless powder, and other high explosives. The United States was still officially neutral, but demand for munitions was already at record levels. U.S. factories were basically keeping the Allied war effort going with their imports. The managers at Purity Distilling recognized the unique opportunity presented by the war and were determined to profit from it. 
So they pushed the construction of the tank, hurrying workers as they riveted together massive steel plates. Although the plates were enormous, if anyone had bothered to measure them, they would have realized they weren't as thick as had been specified in the plans. The steel industry was overwhelmed with orders, and quality control suffered. But that didn't matter to the managers of purity distilling. What mattered was getting the tank built on time. In the rush, one of the construction workers died, falling 40 feet from scaffolding to his death. This delayed the project, as did bad weather, and so when the tank was complete, the first shipment of molasses was only two days away. The construction company had called for the tank to be tested for leaks by filling it with water, but that would have taken days, and Purity Distilling didn't have days. They ordered the tank filled with water to a depth of six inches. Nothing bad happened, so they drained the water and awaited the first shipment of molasses. Otherwise, the tank wasn't inspected by the city building department or the construction company or anyone else. The law didn't require it. Who had that kind of time? The tank was a busy place throughout the war. The value of explosives exported from the United States jumped from $2.8 million in March 1915 to $75 million in August 1916. U.S. Industrial Alcohol, the parent company of Purity Distilling, saw its net profits increase nearly ninefold between 1914 and 1916. Millions of gallons of molasses went through the tank. It was probably to be expected that the prominence of the tank and its role in the war effort attracted the attention of Italian anarchists. For several years, Purity Distilling paid for 24-hour police protection of the tank, and it seemed entirely warranted. A bomb had been discovered under one of the molasses storage tanks of U.S. Industrial Alcohol's Brooklyn facility. Thankfully, it was safely removed. In Boston's North End, a bomb had blasted a hole through the Salutation Street police station only a few blocks from the tank. It was sheer luck that no one was killed. And one day, the phone rang in the Purity Distilling office next to the molasses tank, warning that the tank would be blown up and everyone nearby killed. No one knew who had issued the warning, but it was taken seriously. Even without the threat of anarchists, those working nearby worried about the safety of the massive structure. The tank didn't look so good. Every time it was filled, long streaks of molasses would seep from the seams in the riveted metal plates. Sticky liquid constantly pooled at the base of the tank, and as I said before, neighborhood children often scooped it up to lick off their fingers or bring home to their mothers to make treats. The company tried caulking the tank multiple times, but soon the syrup would again ooze from the seams and down the sides. The site manager worried about the leaks and worried even more about the strange sounds that rumbled from the tank. Sometimes you could tell something was happening inside. It was bubbling or shifting or something. The site manager, one Isaac Gonzalez, complained to his supervisor so many times about the leaks and the noises that they told him any further complaints would cost him his job. Gonzalez worried so much about the tank that he often slept in his office so he would be on hand if something terrible happened. Gonzalez's supervisor said the tank was perfectly fine, Gonzalez was hysterical, and everyone needed to shut up and do their job. 
The company's solution to the leaks was to paint the tank a rusty brown color, almost the exact shade of the molasses itself. Now you couldn't see how badly the tank was leaking, which was almost as good as it not leaking at all, right? Isaac Gonzalez, fed up with being ignored, quit his job at Purity Distilling and enlisted in the Army. When the war ended in November 1918, Purity Distilling, like all industries connected to the war effort, knew demand for their product would drop, and fast. Eventually, the entire economy would shift to a peacetime footing, and factories would again need industrial alcohol, but that would take time. In the short term, they needed to ride it out. Prohibition offered a solution. It seemed certain that within a year, the production and sale of liquor would be illegal. So why not crank out as much rum as possible before the law took effect? The company ordered one more massive shipment of molasses to arrive on January 12, 1919. Meanwhile, most Americans hoped that the end of the war would also bring an end to the anarchist threats. Purity distilling ended full-time security for the tank, assuming as much. But the Galeonists weren't done spreading terror. They were as angry as ever, particularly about the recently passed immigration law, under which they could all be deported. On January 10th, placards were found on walls and buildings all around the North End from a group calling itself the American Anarchists. The signs warned, quote, deportation will not stop the storm from reaching these shores. The storm is within and will very soon leap and crush and annihilate you in blood and fire. You have shown no pity to us. We will do likewise. We will dynamite you. Purity Distilling was notified of the placards, like all other businesses in the area, but the company decided not to resume the 24-hour police presence at the site. It was expensive, and now was not the time to incur additional costs. Two days later, the tanker Miliero arrived and pumped 600,000 gallons of molasses into the Boston tank. The tank already held something like 1.7 million gallons, and the addition meant the enormous structure was almost completely full. Critically, the new molasses was much warmer than that already in the tank. Remember, it was January in Boston, and the old molasses was very cold. Likely not quite frozen solid, but close. The new molasses had just arrived from Cuba, and the process of pumping kept it warm. These two liquids mixed, and the warm syrup caused the cold syrup to rise in temperature. The syrup likely expanded slightly as it warmed. Modern-day researchers of the event also believe the molasses began to ferment just a bit, and fermentation releases gas gas that pressed on the walls of the tank. As the tank filled up, those nearby heard strange sounds from deep within, bubbling, churning sounds that made the walls of the tank slightly vibrate. But Purity Distilling staff had heard the tank rumble before, and they had a job to do. When the tanker finished its work, the tank held 2.3 million gallons of molasses. The liquid weighed 26 million pounds. The next day, the 15th of January, as I said, it was warmer than usual, around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 
By noon, the streets around the tank were crowded with life. Carts and trucks rumbled down the road. Office workers walked to lunch. Housewives set out to buy groceries. In the Engine 31 firehouse, the crew played cards. A teamster delivered 15 hogs to the wharf for shipment. Kids home from lunch from their elementary school gathered scraps of wood that had fallen from the elevated railway that ran next to the tank. On the railway, a train rattled along its route, and patrolman Frank McManus picked up the phone at the Commercial Street call box to make his regular scheduled report to headquarters. Afterward, everyone talked about the noise. It was like a thunderclap like a horse team smashing through a fence, like a roaring surf. Mixed in the crashing, roaring sound were a series of rapid percussions that were compared to machine gun fire. This was the sound of rivets shooting out of the tank at ferocious speed as the metal seams catastrophically failed. To McManus, it was as if the tank walls disintegrated. He just had time to shout to the dispatcher, send all available rescue personnel immediately. And then he ran for his life. A wall of molasses erupted outward in all directions. It was 25 feet high and 160 feet wide at its peak. And it moved at 35 miles per hour. The liquid drove before it the steel panels of the tank, along with anything else in its path. Buildings collapsed, and their cellars instantly filled with molasses. The elevated railway car had just passed the tank when the wall of syrup hit the support trestles, instantly reducing them to a tangle of wood and metal. The track collapsed just behind the train, Had it been traveling even a few seconds slower, the train would have plunged off the tracks. The conductor yanked on the brakes, terrified by the thought that another train was only minutes behind him. He leapt from the car, scrambled over the wreckage, and stood on the tracks frantically waving. The driver of the following train gaped at the sight of him and yanked the emergency brake with all of his strength, screeching to a halt only feet before the gap in the tracks. All of the train passengers were saved. People on the street weren't so lucky. They were carried away by the molasses, thrown against walls and debris, pummeled with wreckage. Some were swept into the harbor. Many drowned in molasses on dry land. One of the children collecting firewood, 10-year-old Maria Dostasio, was only feet away from the tank. She died almost instantly. Her brother Antonio survived, although he suffered a fractured skull when he was flung against a lamppost. Their friend Pasquale was carried more than 50 feet by the wave and crushed against a wall. The Engine 31 firehouse was knocked off of its foundation. The top stories of the three-story building collapsed, trapping firefighters in about an 18-inch high gap on the first floor. They were pinned by debris and lying in a pool of molasses. Worse, the molasses was rising. That was the horror of it. They lay trapped and in pain as the sticky, heavy liquid crept up and up toward their mouths and noses. One man drowned in the syrup 
with his friends only inches away, but unable to help. In the cold air, the molasses began to harden. The first rescue workers to arrive, many of them sailors from Navy ships docked nearby, had to wade through the thickening molasses up to their hips. The injured were rushed to the Haymarket Relief Station, a small hospital about half a mile from the disaster scene. As the injured were brought in, both they and the rescue workers tracked in with them molasses. Soon all of the doctors and nurses were covered with molasses. The floors and walls of the hospital were stained with molasses. Stretchers and wheelchairs stuck in the molasses, coating the corridor floors. Molasses soaked into the bedding of the injured and dripped from their hair. I think the reaction of most people when they hear that there was a molasses flood is a smile, a chuckle. Molasses seems like a cheerful thing, a delightful thing. A flood of molasses sounds charmingly absurd. What's next, a maple syrup hurricane? A caramel tornado? But when you learn about the molasses flood, it's horrifying. People describe fighting out of the molasses as it sucked them down, held them fast, oozed over their skin. Think about how hard it is to walk through several feet of water. Now imagine if instead of water, you are trudging through a liquid much heavier, thicker, stickier, and slowly solidifying. Most of the injured were discovered before it grew dark on that short January day and the temperature dropped below freezing. The Boston police moved through the area searching for all of the horses injured and trapped by the flood. All afternoon and evening, the sound of shots rang out as they put the horses out of their misery. The very next day, January 16th, the 18th Amendment prohibiting the production and sale of alcohol became law when Nebraska became the 26th of 48 states to ratify it. The law would take effect in one year. U.S. industrial alcohol, however, would be left out of the rush to fill America's liquor closets. 21 people died in the Great Molasses Flood. The oldest was a 69-year-old blacksmith, John M. Cyberlick. The youngest were 10-year-old Maria Distasio and Pasquale Iantosco. 150 more were injured. Many suffered severe internal injuries, along with broken bones. Wounds were likely to become infected since they had been smothered in molasses. Cleanup took weeks. The molasses solidified to a rock-hard mass in the cold and had to be hacked out with picks and shovels. Eventually, crews brought in fireboats and high-pressure hoses to spray salt water to cut through the solidified syrup. Massive hydraulic pumps were brought in to suck molasses out of cellars. The water in Boston Harbor was brown with molasses until summer. What had gone wrong? No one was certain. The disaster had been bizarre, unprecedented. The wreckage was enormous. The steel plates that made up the tank walls were found twisted and broken yards from where they had started. Curiously, though, the tank's large circular roof had fallen almost straight down and remained basically intact on the concrete foundation. Almost immediately, disputes erupted over who was at fault. 
A grand jury began hearing evidence within a month on charges of criminal negligence against U.S. industrial alcohol. The jury found that the structure had been improperly designed, constructed with inadequate materials, remember the steel plates were thinner than specified, and insufficiently inspected before use. However, they could not find enough evidence to indict U.S. industrial alcohol for manslaughter. No criminal charges would ever be brought in the molasses flood. U.S. industrial alcohol denied any negligence. To the company, the cause of the disaster was clear. Anarchists. Only five days before the explosion, signs had gone up all over the North End from anarchists warning, quote, the storm is within and very soon will leap and crush and annihilate you in blood and fire. Direct threats had been made against the tank had not Isaac Gonzalez received a phone call threatening to dynamite it. Clearly, the company could not be held responsible for what we would today call an act of terrorism. Arrest the anarchists. Nevertheless, multiple parties filed civil cases against U.S. industrial alcohol, and the Massachusetts Superior Court decided to combine 119 separate legal claims into one case. This became, in effect, one of the first and certainly the largest class action suit to date in the United States. The case was so complicated and involved so many parties that the judge decided to appoint an auditor to hear evidence and issue a report on his findings. An auditor is an impartial master with the responsibility of sorting out issues before they go to trial. U.S. industrial alcohol tried to prove the disaster had been caused by dynamite dropped into the tank. The plaintiffs tried to prove the tank failed because it was improperly constructed. Witnesses appeared describing the thickness of the steel, the sounds from the tank, the constant leaks, and the lack of concern shown by U.S. industrial alcohol and its subsidiary purity distilling. Also presented was evidence about the anarchist threats and attacks, but the case against the company was overwhelming. The manager responsible for the construction of the tank admitted no one with any technical experience or training had ever reviewed the plans for the tank or inspected it after it was constructed or, in fact, had anything to do with the tank at any point in its lifetime. An engineering professor at MIT testified that the tank wasn't anywhere close to strong enough for the task at hand. Eventually, nearly 1,000 witnesses testified in the case. Hearings dragged on for three years, and it was another year and a half before the auditor released his conclusions. He found that U.S. industrial alcohol was liable for the collapse of the molasses tank. He rejected outright claims of sabotage or anarchist violence. It was a monumental decision, one of the first times an American company was found responsible for negligence. The company eventually paid out $628,000 in damages. That's $9.8 million in 2018 dollars. The relatives of those killed each received about $7,000, which is about $101,000 today. That's small compared to damages awarded in class action cases today, but in 1919, it set a new standard. Long before the civil case concluded, civil building codes had changed. Every state of the union moved to adopt laws requiring engineers to be certified, and the plans for all major structures to be sealed by professional engineers before permits were issued. 
I think most of us take this sort of thing for granted today. We assume that when someone builds something, it's not going to suddenly and catastrophically fall down. We assume that buildings have fire escapes and the exits won't be locked. We assume someone has done the math, double-checked the thickness of the steel, and inspected the plans. In 1919, these were not things you could assume. The Great Molasses Flood was a freak accident, yes, but not that freak. Remember that a DuPont gunpowder factory in Delaware averaged more than two explosions every year for more than a century. More than 2,000 people died in mining accidents in 1919. No one checked the thickness of the steel. No one batted an eye when a construction worker plunged 40 feet to his death. No one stopped to figure out why the tank was leaking so much molasses. It was a favorite hangout for neighborhood children. They just painted the tank the same color of the leaks and they moved on. Now, the owners of U.S. industrial alcohol weren't evil or malicious. Unlike the anarchists, they meant no one harm. They were products of a system that placed profits over the health of workers and communities. They probably felt it was unfair that they were found negligent, and I can actually see their point. If you compare their punishment with the total lack of consequences that their colleagues in other industries experienced for routine behavior that injured or killed workers, it was unfair. It is only when you believe that the lives of those workers and community members are more important than selling rum or industrial alcohol, that their culpability becomes clear. In 1919, many Americans were unwilling to accept that lives were worth more than dollars. But the ground had shifted enough, just barely enough, that U.S. industrial alcohol was forced to accept responsibility, and building laws changed. The United States became a safer place after the Great Molasses Flood, that was hollow comfort for the families of Maria de Stasio and Pasquale Antosco, but reassuring, perhaps, for us. U.S. industrial alcohol never rebuilt the tank, and not long after it closed its factory in Cambridge. The molasses trade in Boston came to an end after three centuries, and it's unlikely anyone in particular missed it. For decades, the people of Boston said that on hot summer days, you could smell the sickly sweet odor of molasses rising from the streets of the North End. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Next week, we're going to look at labor issues in 1919 and tell the story of the 1919 Red Scare. It's an episode that follows many of the same themes we discussed this week, including the Espionage, Immigration, and Sedition Acts, the Anarchist Bombings, and Labor. I think you can already tell the United States went a little nuts in 1919, and next week we're going to learn more about how that insanity played out. Check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for lots of links and photos. We are lucky to have many images of the North End after the flood, and I think they really help give a sense of the scale of the destruction. I'd also love to have you join the Facebook group and say hello on Twitter. I waste a lot of time there, and I'd love to waste it with you. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I'd love, love, love if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to recent reviewers GW, who I believe is my old college friend, Greg. Hi, Greg. Thank you. And Hippopotsy, who told me I am not allowed to get sick anymore, which sounds like a great plan, honestly. So let's make that happen. Everyone who has left a review, thank you so much. 
And thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.